Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts? Living God, you are our refuge and our strength. We need your strength even now. As we open your word, we need the strength of your truth to overcome the lies that we believe about ourselves and about the world around us. As we open up your word, we need your refuge and your strength to overcome the fears that surround us. God, we confess that we fear the wrong things. We run around fearing everything and not fearing you. Redirect our fears by the truth of your word. As we open your word, we need you and your strong and mighty power to make us be still and know that you are God. As far as we are able, we invite you to still and silence our silly, self-centered fig leaves of counter-arguments against you. Conform us now to you and you alone. God who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us and win. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, and then a reading in First Peter chapter 5. As an, as an introduction to this precious epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, to the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And I'd ask you to turn ahead to chapter 5 and to introduce ourselves to this epistle. We'll read toward the close of the epistle, picking it up in chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you. 
who are in Christ. This morning, a brief introduction to the where, when, who, and why of this epistle of 1 Peter. I'm going to share with you a little bullet list of maybe 10 things that are issues or truths or facts or helpful things that are going to come up in 1 Peter, but I submit to you that this little list of 10 bullet points is also a complete list of conversations that probably did happen in this very room, under this very roof, in the last, oh, fortnight or so. You know what a fortnight is? It's a video game where you jump around and shoot people and level up. I'm, believe me, I'm at a higher level than any of you think I am. But that being aside, uh, I just, I was watching something or reading something and they said a fortnight and I wasn't sure what it was. I it was like 40 days. A fortnight is 14 days. So this little list, it's a list of what shows up in 1 Peter, but my contention is it's also a list of real conversations that some of us have had in the last fortnight or so. Here's the, here are the things. Something really hard and painful is happening to me, and I'm starting to lose hope. What do I do? I am finding that I'm spending too much time online. How do I change my habits? You know what I figured out is that I, I'm obsessed with the news. I'm just watching the news all the time, and I'm filled with anxiety. What do I do about that? Can you help me? I did a little bit of gambling on fantasy football, and it was fun for $5 or $15, but now I'm losing a lot of money, and I feel like it's an obsession that's out of control. I always get blamed for everything at my job, in my office, in my relationships. I'm being unfairly treated. How do I keep loving people when they treat me unfairly? I am having big problems with my boss at work. Everybody says the boss is a jerk. I'm not going to say that because I'm a Christian, but I'm just saying I'm having real problems with my boss at work. And to be honest with you, I feel like I'm doing a better job than everyone around me, but I get treated the worst of anybody and bypassed for everything. What's going on here? Here's one. A wife who really loves Jesus and her husband doesn't. So she says, I really, really want my husband to love Jesus. I'm not sure what to do but I have been putting post-it notes with Bible verses on his Miller Lite cans, and I have been dropping invitations to men's Bible study in his car when he's not looking. I'm on the right track, right? Someone who's 21, 20, 22 years old. I, I want to win my friends to Jesus because they don't know Jesus. But to spend time with them, we go out on the weekends, and they're doing things that are questionable. I don't really want to do those things, but I want to be with them. How do I manage that? I really love this church, but I don't know how to serve. I understand that if you can play one of those instruments, that's what you do. And if you can sing in the choir, that's what you do. And I know they always need people to teach children or, 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 or write down their crayon lessons or whatever, but I'm not sure where, what my spiritual gifts are and where I fit in to serve in the church. Can you help me with that? Or how about this? 
I don't understand or agree with the decision that the leadership of this church has made. What does God say about how elders should lead and why they should make the decisions that they make and how those decisions should be evaluated? Every single one of those are the subjects in 1 Peter. I guess I have to admit in all candor that sometimes as an expositional preacher who goes verse by verse, I have to do a little bit of hard work to build a bridge of application from the text of Scripture to contemporary reality. I dare say that there may be a chapter or two in Genesis in your ABFs where the teacher has to do that. Not so in 1 Peter. This is everything that is coming up in all of our conversations all the time. The book is specifically about suffering because you are a Christian. It's not just suffering because you got cancer or you were in an accident, though there are principles that can help with those things. Specifically, it's about suffering because of your Christian conviction. This is what it's about. Does this sound familiar? You live in a world where when you display God's beautiful holiness, the world calls that ugly hatred. What do you do about that? When you show what the Bible calls truth and kindness and love, the world calls that cruelty and hate and then begins to treat you as an outcast and a dangerous person. How do you handle that without becoming morose? Peter's all about how not just to grin and bear it under suffering, but the key phrase, chapter 1, verse 3, <clears throat> a living hope. So it's not just that we keep getting knocked down and we keep getting up again and we become more and more grim and more and more hard. <clears throat> it's that when you knock us down, we only get up with more love for you, more hope in God's future, and a bolder desire to share with you what got us knocked down in the first place. Can't stop us because of this living hope. So this morning, to take a few minutes briefly and answer the where and when and who and why of 1 Peter. First, where and when. The where is in verse 1 to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Why does he begin with Pontus and end with Bithynia? Well, maybe he begins with Pontus and ends with Bithynia because that's the route that he took. After all, the last time you were traveling from Pontus to Bithynia, isn't that the route that you took? It's just the natural geographical route that you would go on. Now, we have no record of Peter visiting these regions. It's very interesting because we can read through the book of Acts and we can see what Peter did. There's no record uh, after Acts 15. We know everywhere that Peter went that's recorded in Acts. It is, I suppose, remotely possible that Peter did visit these areas, but he probably didn't, and there's certainly no biblical record that he did. We do know that in Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul tried to visit these areas and he says the Holy Spirit closed the door so that he couldn't get there. But somehow, in God's sovereign goodness, the gospel made it to these areas and there were multiple churches in these areas. In fact, not only did the gospel make it there and there were multiple churches, there were multiple churches that were becoming so uh, publicly noticeable 
that the members of those churches were beginning to be persecuted for the efficacy and the vibrancy of their faith, for their countercultural way of living. And those precious believers needed to be instructed and helped. Peter writes to encourage, and Peter writes to teach, because true biblical encouragement comes with true biblical teaching. True biblical encouragement is not a feeling, though it is filled with feelings. True biblical encouragement is truth that is taught in such a way that it influences the way you feel, the way you stand, and the way you are steadfast. He's writing to encourage through teaching. It's difficult for us to imagine the risks and the dangers of travel in the Bible times, isn't it? We, uh, uh, the risk of our travel is that a flight is delayed, but we're always within 10 steps of a Cinnabon or a Starbucks while our flight is being delayed, right? The risks that Silas, we know from that, that last or Silvanus, or Silas he's called in chapter 5, verse 12, the risks that Silas or Silvanus took in taking this journey uh, were many. We know that he left from Rome, but in 1 Peter, Rome is called Babylon. It's like a secret code word because the, I'm not sure exactly why, it's probably because of the, the, the prophecies and also because the persecution was beginning to heat up. And so Silas or Silvanus would have sailed from Rome across the Mediterranean Sea and through the Corinthian Straits. And then he would have stopped in uh, uh, Delos before boarding a ship and then traveling through the Aegean Sea. And so by the time that he got into what is now called Istanbul, he had already traveled almost a thousand miles and he hadn't visited the churches yet. Then he had across the Black Sea, and, and do this overland circuit from Pontus to Galatia to Cappadocia to Asia to Bithynia. These regions were very diverse. Some of them were alongside the sea. Some of them were up in the mountains. These regions would have spoken different languages and had different cultures and different customs. These people, as far as we can tell, were Gentile believers primarily, not primarily Jewish believers. But look at, what, look at what all this diversity adds up to in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. See, he says to these various peoples in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he says to them in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, all singular, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Receiving God's mercy changed all of their fundamental allegiances and influenced their most fundamental identity. He calls these people the one new race, the one new people of God. The Bible is pretty clear that there are various cultures and ethnos and languages, and the Bible is extremely clear that there is one race, the human race. And then the redeemed who are in Christ are together 
citizens of one new nation. When did Peter write this? We know it was written during uh, Nero's reign. Historically, we have Peter's martyrdom happening toward the close of Nero's reign. We know that Nero, Emperor Nero reigned from 54 to 68. When we're doing Old Testament dates, we're going backwards to zero after the birth of Christ and after the resurrection of Christ, we go back up. So we know that Nero reigned from 54 to 68. We don't know the exact year that this was written, but our best guess is that it was written sometime in the early 60s. Christians and Jews were being mistreated by Nero and the Roman Empire, but the persecution of Christians and Jews was not as bad as it was going to get at the close of Nero's reign. That's why we think it was sometime in the early 60s. The Roman Empire was hostile to Christians and Jews because the their way of life and the fact that they confessed Jesus as Lord, the Romans uh, perceived that as hostile to the Roman way of life. They, they were seen as not all the way in with what the government was doing and the values that the government was promoting. The gospel truth that the church believed and shared ran counter to what the contemporary government was saying. The gospel truths that the church believes and confesses today is increasingly beginning to run up against what the government is saying. We know that Rome burned in 64, and we know that Nero blamed the Christians, a false attribution, he blamed the Christians for starting that fire. So that after 64, the, the violent martyrdom and aggression against the Christians really ramped up. Our best guess is that Peter wrote before this because of a couple of reasons. One, there's no direct evidence of martyrdom in the text of 1 Peter, though there is multiple evidence of being verbally reviled. And secondly, because in chapter 2, Peter makes very conciliatory comments toward the government, which we have to guess, but I'm not sure that he would have made the same kinds of comments if the government was, was, had gone all the way as far as Nero eventually went. Anyway, we know that Peter was written at a time when the church was being persecuted and when the heat of that persecution was going up, not down. Going up, not down. Peter wrote knowing that things were bad and they were actually going to become worse. Notice that he wrote to multiple places, not just one church, like the church at Corinth or the church at this place or that place. He wrote to multiple places. And in each place, the believers would have gathered to have Silas read the letter out loud. There were no church buildings. I want you to imagine what it would have been like. I, I think some of them maybe met in a cave or if the weather was nice on a hillside. Some of them would have met in a home, maybe the largest home that they could have found and maybe there would be a, a, a portico in, at the front of the home or in the center of the home where they could, where they could meet. The letter takes 17 minutes to read if you use the ESV Bible app like I do. And it takes only 17 minutes to read and this is where I could insert a self-deprecating joke that it takes 17 minutes to read and it's gonna take me 17 months to preach it but I don't do self-deprecating humor. Uh, anyway, when, when Sylvanus 
gathered the saints together in these different locations, uh, he would read the letter. And then I think what happened was they would stay for hours because he would, to use our language, he would preach the letter or explain the letter or exposit the letter or in, in, in a helpful way apply the letter to the, to the various things that were happening in their lives. And they'd pray and they'd sing. And that's what they did. That's the, uh, the who and the kind of the when. Perhaps the most precious who question to answer is, what do we know about Peter? What do we know about Peter, the man? So this is one of those questions. If you could pick one person, right? If you could pick one person. I know that time travel doesn't work. And even though I didn't like it, I watched a couple of seasons of Doctor Who because when my boys were growing up, one of my boys really liked Doctor Who and I didn't like Doctor Who, but I really liked my boy, so I watched it with him. I never understood anything that was happening and I don't understand time travel. But if time travel worked and take, take Jesus out of it, don't edit that into what goes on the website. Take Jesus. But taking Jesus out of it, like, like you can't pick Jesus if you could pick, if you could pick one person from the New Testament to have a bucket of wings with, or if you're a vegan, to have a bucket of carrots have mercy on you with. <laughs> like, who would you pick? I think a lot of us would pick Peter. Why? I think Peter is such a strong contender because we can relate to failure. We can relate to regret. We can regret to thinking we're the best and then realizing that we're not. Peter knew how to fail. Peter knew how to speak first and think later. Peter knew how to be so filled with love for Jesus that he jumped in the water and said, forget it all. And then he knew how to sink once he got there. What do we know about Peter? If you turn back to John chapter 1, we, introduce, we are introduced to Peter when he comes to Jesus. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. John 1, 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two, disciples, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So we know that his name in Greek was Simon, in Hebrew, Simeon. And we know that Jesus changed his name to Cephas or to Peter, and we know from the very beginning of the introduction that this guy, Andrew, who is no small shakes because he is himself a disciple, is identified as what? Peter's brother. 
Meaning right from the beginning, we're, we're getting to see that Peter has some sort of a starring role in this drama. We know that Peter was really good at failing and also really good at being restored by Jesus. Look ahead to Matthew 16. And this is one of Peter's colossal failures. Matthew 16. Notice that his failure is, is a follow-up to one of his colossal successes. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone could, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know that after Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1 says that Peter led the movement to replace Judas with a new disciple. And then Acts chapter 2 says that Peter got up and boldly preached so that thousands would come to Christ. We're beginning to see the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that Peter is in some sense, in that historical sense, a, 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 the, that, that confession of Peter and that gospel preaching of Peter begins the growth of the church. Though... It is also the case that in 1 Peter, the verses that we read, verses 1 through 3, Peter doesn't use the article and say, Peter, the apostle, or the papa, or the pope. Peter says, I am an apostle. And then he's going to say in chapter 5, I am a fellow elder. There is a very elaborate and expensive and entrenched Roman Catholic dogma about Peter being the first pope. And though it is very entrenched and very elaborate and very expensive, it's just flat wrong and not factual. Peter was an apostle and an elder. We know Peter's story. We know that he ran to the tomb. From what we know about Peter's emotional uh, vacuity, we know that he was probably ran really hot and really cold. And so I would imagine that the 
devastation and sorrow that he felt at Christ's death, knowing that he had denied the Lord, was as deep as those caverns of the human soul can take it. But then when he ran, and then when he learned that Jesus was risen, the joy that he had would have become incontainable. And I collapse all of this into his little phrase in verse three of chapter one, we have a living hope. Beloved, this Bible text in particular was not written by a person who didn't know what it felt like to be hopeless. Sometimes we, we, we come to church and we know we ought to be doing better than we are. Well, that's good. I want you to aspire to be better than you are. But realize that everybody who wrote the Bible should have been doing better than they were. The scriptures that they write to us are inerrant and, and sufficient. And yet the very instruments that God used to write it, they knew what it felt like to fail and be hopeless and in need of restoration. And they all knew by personal experience, there's more sin in me than I want there to be. There's more sin in me than I understand. But this I know, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in me. Peter knew that. Peter knew that. If you let me show you one more place, look at Luke 22. It's interesting how much bandwidth or how, how many square inches Peter's failures take up in the Gospels. And this is surely his most dramatic in Luke 22. But look at how it's set up. Luke 22, verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Reverting back to an old name, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. Uh, same chapter, if you let your eyes skip down to verse 54. This is where Peter denies the Lord Jesus. When they seized Jesus and led him away, they brought him into the high priest's house. Verse 40, 54 says Peter was following at a distance. And then verse 55 says when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him said, this man also was with him, but he denied it. Saying, woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's the one who said, I'm... I'm never going to deny you. I'll die for you. And Peter's the one who quickly denied his Savior three times and then had that look of sorrow 
and was so overwhelmed with regret. But a short while later, the end of John's gospel, the end of John's gospel, when Jesus made the breakfast for the disciples after his resurrection, Peter heard what must have been the sweetest words that he ever heard when Jesus restored him because Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was able to look in the eyes of Jesus and say, you know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. Those are the only words that are recorded in Scripture, but I, can't we in a sanctified way say, Lord, you know everything. You know that I'm a failure, but you also know that I love you. Oh. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And it's First Peter, where Peter has forever been feeding Jesus' lambs. And this is the text that by God's grace, if he keeps me sane and steady and humble, and he keeps you here and listening, this is the way that he will feed us in the months ahead. I actually think 1 Peter is a literal answer to the prayer of Jesus in verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded that he might sift you like wheat, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. It is the intention of the Holy Spirit of God through Peter, through the exposition of Scripture this year to strengthen you so that you'll be steadfast in your faith through this study of First Peter. This is what I pray for, that your faith will be restored and strengthened, fulfilled in this very letter. If you are afraid that fear has gotten the best of you, First Peter will help you through that. If you are in need of forgiveness for your many failures, First Peter will help you with that. How? By giving you the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in his opening, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. P Peter knew that Nero's persecutions were heating up that it was going to become harder and harder to be a Christian. And yet he says to the Christians, knowing it would be harder to be a Christian, he says, peace is going to be multiplied to you. And Peter knew from personal experience that the Christians would fail and fail again and fail again, like he did. And yet he says to them, God's grace is going to be multiplied to you, multiplied to you. Peter grounds your hope for peace and your hope for grace not in earthly circumstances. Your hope for peace is not in the fact that the persecution turns down, not up. And your hope for grace, hear me, church, your hope for grace is not in the fact that you quit blowing it so much. Your hope for grace is in the fact that you have been sprinkled with his blood. And your hope for peace is in the fact that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen and you have been given a, foreverly, a forever secure living hope. May the Lord Jesus Christ strengthen the souls of the believers in 2023 and the years ahead through this preaching of 1 Peter. Let's pray. As we bow for prayer, I'd ask you to let me lead you in a closing prayer. We don't have a closing song today and I just want to take a, a moment and give you a chance to pray about these things, reflect 
reflectively. A prayer for peace. It's my prayer that peace and grace, grace and peace would be multiplied to you in Christ Jesus. First, a prayer for peace. Would you pray, Lord Jesus, I need your peace. Perhaps you're in a time of relational difficulty. A time of confusion and restlessness. Say, Lord Jesus, I need your peace multiplied to me. Be my prince of peace. Be the anchor of all the hope of my soul. And then a prayer for multiplied grace. And simply pray, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know I fail. I know I've failed you recently. And I depend upon your grace that you are righteous and just to forgive because I've been sprinkled by your blood. Would you multiply your grace in my life? And Lord Jesus, would you, by the power of your grace, transform me to where I would no longer want to say yes to the temptation for sin. And Lord Jesus, would you in your goodness use me as an instrument of your grace in others' lives? Oh, that I might share the gospel with them, that I might forgive them as I've been forgiven. Would you multiply grace in my life, Lord Jesus, that you might be glorified. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.